0: Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's
1: S-Y-L-V-A-N 29.com. Sometimes you got to talk about breakfast before a show.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Raspberry (laughs) yogurt every time. (laughs) Cheerios. A
1: bunch of Cheerios. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias here today with Dylan Scott and with Sarah Cliff. And I'm I'm afraid to say this is a, a kind of a, a sad, a sad episode of the Weeds for me.
2: It is, it but is so perhaps an exciting
1: time for Sarah.
2: It's a sad and exciting time. Um this is sadly probably my last episode. Of the weeds, as um, you may have may have seen on the Twitter website, um, this is my last week at Vox. I am I am going to a newspaper called the New York Times to join their investigative team, and I am. Are they in Queens? Or something? <laughs> you might have heard of them. Um, you know, Donald Trump seems to not be a fan, but maybe I can Fake I can news, get him yeah. on board. Um, but I'm going to be joining their investigations team and looking into all the wild and wacky things that happen in healthcare. Um, but before I do that. I got to choose what our what our last episode of, or on ours. This will continue. Matt will still be hosting the show. Yes,
1: the weeds moves. <laughs> the on. The weeds moves on,
2: <laughs> um, even as I move on. But I got to I got to choose the topic for my for my last episode of the weeds. And hardcore weeds fans will know the very very first thing we talked about in the weeds was single payer. And I thought after the hearings last week, after the CBO report. What else should we should we talk about? But really, bring it back to our weedsy origins and talk about where we are. Some of the big events that have happened on single payer in the past week.
1: I, I don't know. It's it's hard to know, but the, single payer healthcare has gone over the lifetime of the weeds as a show <laughs> from like a random thing some people talk about to something that now has a bill in Congress.
2: Probably because we talk about it so much.
1: Hundreds of co-sponsors and like an actual hearing. In the Rules Committee, uh, some kind of CBO document. So it is now. I mean, I think you know, if people know about the Overton Window, it is now officially inside the window. That's 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 what this all signifies. But then, like, what Dylan, you, you covered this. Like, what 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 happened at this committee hearing?
3: Right. So last week, the House Rules Committee held the first ever hearing on a, a Medicare for All bill. Why did it go to the Rules Committee? So. <laughs> This is sort of a very much like a, an insidery DC drama, but like what's a little in the weeds. The backdrop of this the whole year since House Democrats took control is that like House Democratic leadership needed to like. Throw a bone to single payer supporters and all these, um, all the energy on the left around this Medicare for All idea. And at the same time, they don't want to be seen as like running whole hog in the direction of socialist single payer health care. And so, like what they what they had what they set up at the very beginning of the Congress was we're going to ask CBO for a bunch of information about single payer, and we're going to hold some hearings. And so I interpreted as we we're going to have it in the House Rules Committee hearing because. That's sort of a safe place to have it. Like if the the House Ways and Means Committee, the House Energy and Commerce Committee, the Education and Labor Committee, those are like the, the committees that are actually responsible for writing healthcare legislation. And if like healthcare legislation were going to move somewhere, it would start in those committees. So by having it in rules, it's this it's a small committee that had a handful of single-parent Well, and supporters. like literally the
2: smallest and hearing room I've ever – did they let you in the room or is too tiny for reporters? There were reporters? a
3: handful of reporters in the room. Him, but like there, I there was no reason.
1: But also to the be in but there. also the chairman
3: of rules is a Medicare is, a, for is all support. Medicare for all. Jim McGovern, right. right? So
1: I mean that's part of the the advocates wanted a hearing. Right. The leadership wanted to say, well, we're going to give you a hearing. Then the leadership did not want to like do a bill, or have this be the party position. But they also didn't want to have a hearing that consisted of leadership trashing single pay. Right. Right. So they they wanted to do something that would count as that that at least that the single payer people could say was progress. Right. So having a hearing in a committee that's chaired by a single payer proponent meant that it was it was like a positive hearing.
3: Right. And there was a tizzy last week about it. First, the panel of witnesses didn't have. An explicit Medicare for all supporter. None of the the people who were going to appear before the panel actually like advocated forcefully for Medicare for all, and so that became a story for a couple days. But then it turned out that an um, an activist with ALS named Addie Barkin ended up d- did end up appearing on on the panel and give very moving testimony in favor of Medicare for all. So yeah, this was sort of like this was very much not like a a legislative exercise. It was sort of like letting air out of the balloon. But it also
2: was, I think, I mean, we came away from it. It was much more boring than we expected. It was exceedingly polite. It was, I think, yeah, you termed it on Twitter, the exceedingly polite Medicare for all hearing, which is not usually the way the Medicare for all debate goes. And I think, you know, there was a sense going into it of like, oh, yeah, like there's going to be like fireworks because Democrats are divided and we're going to see like these tensions come out and Republicans are going to trash it. But it wasn't that at all. You know, Donna Shalala, who's former HHS secretary and new member of Congress, she had given some quotes to The Washington Post about, you know, basically, we're not a bunch of dummies. We're not going to go crazy at this hearing. And they certainly delivered on that. I think part of that has to do—we had a conversation about this in the office, Matt, with actually who is on the committee. You know, you don't have, like, the highest profile members who are, like, going for the soundbite on rules. Like, if you're in Ways or Means, Energy or Commerce, those are the people who are closer to— leadership, more high ranking in the party. So that's part of the dynamic. It was a very timid hearing in my view. You know, it was not like poking at like, okay, like, well, what are like the holes in Medicare for all even? And I think some of that was really set by having Addy, testify there. Um, you know, he is someone I really recommend, if you didn't see it, going back and watching his opening statement, which he had to deliver through basically a computer-generated voice. He's at advanced stage ALS, ALS to the point where he can no longer talk and uses a computer that computer that tracks his eye movement to be able to um, feed the computer what he wants to say. His testimony, I think, really seemed to set the um, expectation of civility. I, right. I think it made it a lot harder for Republicans who would have been aggressively trashing Medicare for all to, to do it with after listening to Addie talk about what it would mean for his life. So I think his presence, you know, the fact that it was in rules, the fact Addie was there really seemed to create the conditions – for for a very civil and unfortunately from our perspective incredibly boring right. Medicare for All. Cuz even right.
3: the Republicans followed that lead, you know, yes. they they sort of said we're sympathetic to the goals of especially people like Addy, you know, mm-hmm. everybody was very respectful of him and while they, you know, they took an opportunity, they did, you know, ask their witnesses, you know, isn't this going to cost a bunch of mm-hmm. money and increase people's taxes and lead to rural hospitals closing? There was just sort of a very much more of a kind of wonkish tone to the whole all the proceedings
1: but so i thought to me this reflects exactly how far we are how far the advocates for medicare for all actually are to getting their plan because to me essentially what happened here right is that like when the skeptics chill out Sometimes skeptics get like very amped up and they're like, freedom, right? And then <laughs> and then the Medicare for All proponents get to come back with like their own big moralistic arguments. Like, isn't it sad when people get sick and they can't get health care? And like every other kind, you know, all this stuff, like this stuff Bernie Sanders says on the campaign trail, right, which is very 50,000 feet up. But if you calm down and you like don't loudly oppose Medicare for All, and you're just kind of like, let me turn the microphone over to you, To have a policy discussion. Like, like, what would you like to do with the healthcare system? The Medicare for All proponents oftentimes don't they don't have as much to say. If they start filling out the details, like their own position becomes more vulnerable, right? And so in some ways, like what Republicans would most like to see is like a fully fleshed out Medicare for all bill that, like, specifies mm-hmm. exactly how much taxes are going to go up and whose taxes are going to go up, exactly how much provider payments are going to be cut and how much they're going to be cut, like, who's going to be in charge of deciding which services are eligible for reimbursement and which aren't, you know, da, 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 And then, like, it's not that those are unanswerable questions, right? Because this, this is how it sometimes goes. I'll be like, how are you going to pay for that? And then people are like, well, there's ways, right? But it's like, just, just come. Like, how are you going to pay for that, right? And then, like, you could answer that. The question. But then the opponents could savage you, right? And the, the Medicare for All people, right, like they put up Addy, who's like a great advocate, right, but is not a tax policy expert. And so it's kind of like, all right, guys, like, here you go. Like, what, what do you want to do in your restructuring of 15% of the economy? And there's a lot of timidity there, actually, right? Like there's, there's not, it just like these different iterations of legislation came out, right? And when, when Paul's office sort of like modified the longstanding single-payer bill, it wasn't to fill in any of the blank spaces. It was to say like, and we're doing long-term care
3: too. Right. Yeah, like Democrats at the hearing were not asking detailed questions about like what a fan- financing plan might look like. A couple of the witnesses were physicians. And so they, asked, they would ask the doctors, like, if you didn't have to worry about Navigating five different health insurers would you be able to provide your patients with better care? That kind of more right. lightweight, I guess, policy discussion rather than than looking at like the more difficult questions that single payer poses.
1: And not in theory, what you do in a hearing. This is normal. It's it's not bad that the advocates of a given course of a, action don't have answers to all the detailed questions. But in some theoretical sense, like what you do in the hearings, is you're like, aha. I would like to create a government finance system like I have heard they have in Canada. But I have some questions about how to do that. Mm. So now I'm going to bring up here some experts and I'm going to ask them questions, right? right. Like what will the impact of this be on <laughs> rural hospitals? And we're going to gather information and, and, and write a better bill. But they weren't really doing that, right? right. Like they were not – they were not – Asking questions that would move you closer to here's what the
3: plan is. Well, that's what made it an odd exercise is like the hearing was an end unto itself. The fact that the hearing was happening was what was important. Like I even talked with some folks who've been working on single payer bills for years and they were like, all that we, I really, or the person I talked to said, all I really care about is that we have gotten our place on the stage now. And the fact that this hearing is happening is what's important to me. Um, And so, yeah, I think then the question becomes... Where did they go from here? But clearly, this was not the opportunity in their eyes to get into some of what you're talking about.
2: One of the things that interested me was what Republicans decided to seize on in the hearing. And one of the things I kept going back to was the fact that Vermont tried to build a single-payer system and was unsuccessful. And this came up multiple times, I think in part because The Washington Post had written an article about it. And it just became kind of a thing that I saw them kept going back to. And it was an interesting and kind of I mean, it was an attack on single payer that did and didn't make sense to me, but was surprising that that was more of a focus than like the rationing stuff, which did come up or, um, you know, some of the other, I I think, more valid critiques on Medicare for all. Um, They kept coming back to the fact, well, deep blue Vermont, the place that Bernie Sanders is from, they tried to do this and they were unable to do it and um you know if they can't do it here how are we possibly going to do in the United States which on the one hand is actually a pretty practical question that i think um democrats will need to grapple with you know on on the other hand it kind of um is it's a little bit of a false pretense because i think one of the reasons vermont couldn't do it is it's really really hard for a state to build single payer within a nation that is not single payer but i was surprised to see that come up as kind of a frequent topic of discussion. And it seemed to like almost give credence to like the idea of Medicare all being like, OK, fine, interesting system. But like, look, when they tried to do it, it wouldn't even even work. It seemed to like seed some ground in that being the area that they were questioning on.
1: And it makes me wonder, Sarah, like what is the point of all this? Right. Like what what are they the progressives on the Hill trying to achieve exactly this is 2019 they have been talking about this for a couple of years bernie sanders campaign i mean people have been talking about single payer for a long time but like bernie sanders's campaign was 2015 2016 it was clear people were going to sort of redouble their efforts on this 2017 2018 now it's 2019 there's going to be an election like they don't they don't seem to be zeroing in on like january 20th 2021 now all these blanks are going to be filled in.
2: Sure. But I think they're getting – I think they are moving in that direction. And, like, we're going to talk about the CBO report that came out in a little bit. And I think that is part of it, too. Mm -hmm. I think they're – I think, like, Dylan was saying, like, they're laying the groundwork where single-payer hearings are a thing that happens – in Congress. Um, And you're starting to get into some of that policy debate. How do you transition to this system? Bernie Sanders thinks you need four years. Pramila Diabon thinks you need two. They both have like arguments for this. Six weeks. Yeah, you know, maybe (laughs) nine months, you know, to give birth to your new health care system. um, Who's really to say? But I think the idea is, especially like when I think back to the Affordable Care Act debate, the idea is to make this part of the conversation. And I think they have successfully done that. Like, it's pretty wild to me that most of the prominent 2020 candidates are running on this platform. And now, like, the the moderate option is a Medicare buy-in. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, the so one of the things is, like, this Overton Windows stuff you brought up at the very top of the episodes. I think that's a key thing that's going on here. I think it's just making it, like, part of the, you know, water that you swim in in D.C., like, making it part of... The debate that is happening. And, you know, it doesn't surprise me to not see politicians getting into the design issues of, okay, like how much are we going to pay people? What is the actual, you know, how are we going to pair back the list of benefits? Because, like, why negotiate that away? That's what you have, like, CBO over, you know, putting out their reports. That's what you have them to kind of do and spell out. And, you know, if you're a Democrat, it's kind of the best of both worlds. You can talk about your big Medicare for all plan and then you can get some of this information starting to trickle out from CBO, also from like analysts at RAND who are doing a bunch of modeling to like kind of figure out the like, well, what does this look like?
3: Right. I think they're really caught up on that idea of not negotiating with themselves like why Mm -hmm. not set out this sort of like north star goal where everybody's covered under one plan and almost every medical service is available at no cost and then like maybe eventually you pare back from that but like why do that now when we're just sort of in agenda setting
1: well right and I, i mean i think to make this explicit right like
2: also 2021 they're not going to have the votes to do this <laughs> right. so right. like we're looking like more like 2025 maybe is what this is all leading well, up but, to well but i mean i do think
1: I, I think that a lot of what's driving this action on the hill is an interpretation of what happened in 2009 that sort of the left was like thrown a bone in the form of the public option concept And I think with the understanding that the public option was always going to be yanked away as like, uh aha, the moderates like saved industry from the public option. And I think that a lot of people on the left feel in retrospect, not so much that they should have fought harder for the public option or whatever, but just that like they allowed the debate to be anchored too close to the center. Right. And that, like, if what progressives believe is that every healthcare service should be free at point of service to everybody. And it should all be financed by taxpayers that like they should just say that like over and over and over and over and over again and that they should not attempt to answer any of the questions about how that specifically will work because they are aware that they don't have the votes and that they're not going to get the votes and that they're not going to change anybody's mind. But that like they are just going to say what they think, which is that all healthcare services should be free to everybody and it should be paid for by taxpayers and there should be no limits on it and like they're going to try to make the the center respond to them right rather than moving preemptively so it'll be like just be like what like what have you got,
3: Joe Biden? Yeah. Well, and doesn't it feel like that's worked? Like if you look at the Center for American Progress, I was
2: just the same thing, um, which right. is
3: like you know the the fulcrum of like Democratic establishment policymaking. They've put out this Medicare for Extra for All that's now become a Medicare for America bill sponsored by Rosa DeLauro and Jan Schakowsky in the House. That's like far to the left of where the ACA was. Like it would enroll. Well, and
2: it seems like the impetus is on cap to be like, okay, but here's why ours is, because like you get why like free healthcare for everyone yeah, is yeah, good. Yeah. Now the impetus is on cap to do the analysis to say, no, 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 here's why why ours is, is just as good. Um, it, it kind of creates a nice dynamic for single-payer supporters where you put like the more moderate people, you know, on the defense with their ideas. I thought
1: that as of a month ago, this was working really well for single-payer people, right? Because like you had Bernie still out there. Then you had a number of other senators who got in the race early endorsing the Medicare for all legislation. And then you had Beto O'Rourke and Pete Buttigieg sort of anchoring what passed it for a right flank of the debate (laughs) by endorsing this Medicare for America legislation. And that that was the dynamic that the single-payer people wanted. Like I think like they wanted Bernie Sanders to be the nominee. But like even if he wasn't, like the center alternative had become so left, right? right. And and it had created a situation in which like a moderate Democratic senator, right? Like a, a, a Michael Bennett or whomever could be like, yeah, I'm for this way to the left of the ACA plan, which is moderate now. Yeah the extent to which joe biden has waded into the race jumped out to a very large early lead and like not made any commitments at all along these lines is like i'm not saying like this now means the plan that seemed to be working is a total failure but like it it calls it into question right in my but view.
2: it's still i mean it's still so Early. And like, I think we're going to go through the debates that are going to, oh God, they're going to start, like, vomiting a little bit saying this. They're going to start in a month. (laughs) We're going to start with the debates. And like, Joe Biden is going to have those moments, you know, where he's asked, like, do you support healthcare for everyone? He's going to, like, one of the things I thought was pretty interesting, and and we both wrote about this is that Wall Street analysts um, who study healthcare companies are pretty jazzed for Joe Biden. They think it'd be pretty good for the insurance companies if we had a Biden presidency. But I, I agree. You're right. He, you know he has been able, and, and I think it's also like a nice reminder that like the people all of us follow on Twitter are not the electorate, and like I mean, we'll people... see what happens, right. right? Like
1: maybe people are liking Joe Biden because they are assuming that Joe Biden, a very mainstream establishment Democrat, will endorse the new mainstream establishment consensus view and maybe in fact he will do that right like if the upshot of all this is president joe biden and medicare for america as outlined by cap that would be a big success for the single payer movement but also if what happens is joe biden just keeps being like affordable care act that was a big fucking deal and like he wins with 44 percent of the vote but also he's
2: someone who you know i went back when i wrote the story about his views on healthcare. who um was actually a force pushing against doing the affordable care act Indeed. that he you know it's not just that he's not a medicare for all supporter but when you look back um you know reading through histories of the obama administration he there was this debate in 2009 you know, we're just digging out of a recession. Do we really want to throw all our political capital behind health care? And President Obama was like, yes. Joe Biden was like, no, we should not do that. And President Obama won because he is the president. Um, and I think that is an important lesson about like a huge space between Biden and Bernie. It's not just one has endorsed health care and one hasn't. It's one fervently believes we need to overhaul our health care system. And one kind of thinks like, eh, not worth the political capital. And I think that divide is going to come out more i mean what we're on like week two of the biden candidacy i think this divide will be like explored and come out more right as we get into the primary yeah
3: i've had this question for a while about how like scalable healthcare politics really are because i think there's this perception that like Almost all Democrats support Medicare for All now, and it's like a, a, mm-hmm. a make-or-break issue for them. And But I think that the the polling is a little more nuanced than that, like, yes, Democrats are generally sympathetic to the goals of national health insurance or universal health care program, but they're not really absolutist about it. Like, you know, there uh, there's polling that shows, like, yeah, 60% of Democrats say they support Medicare for All, but – more than half of them would rather prioritize fixing the Affordable Care Act in the near term.
2: Wait, so we should take a break. Yeah, let's let's and take then a we break. Need to talk a little Turn, bit about this the CBO CBO report.
4: Support for the weeds comes from not another politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash NAP. That's N-A-P-P.
0: Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge? That takes a team.
1: So it makes me sad that Sarah will not be with us as Joe Biden needs to start answering these questions in the debates because I think the conventional wisdom around this has like swung so hard in in a few weeks that we don't know. But what we have right now before us is the Congressional Budget Office. Yes, Good friends of yours, Sarah. Yes. Yes.
2: Very good friends.
1: They did. I guess this was not like a score of the single payer bill because the single payer bill as written is uh, uh, a little vague. But they were kind of laying out, what, like like principles?
2: Yes. So I'll tell you the name of this report. And uh, House
3: Democrats didn't want a score, to be clear. Yeah. Like their request from CBO was like, don't analyze a specific bill. Just answer <laughs> some very broad general so, questions. Yes. Which again,
1: <laughs> I think – well, I, I, I think this is – I really encourage you to pay attention to what it is that like – your guys on Capitol Hill are actually doing, and and ask yourself some some questions. Okay, yeah. About yeah. So what's this happening.
2: this report it is um titled <laughs> "Key Design Components and Considerations for Establishing a Single-Payer Healthcare System," um, and it has this nice little graphic on the front about some of the components of single-payer healthcare, like role of current systems, covered serious services and cost sharing, payment rates, cost containment, and financing. Um it's like arrows in a circle. It's um so boxes. there's not it's like a circle and they're all on the circle. It's um I don't really get what the circle's doing in the graphic, but that's neither here nor there. So, you know, the CBO report, I think it was also a little bit Dylan and I like to down. like give you a sense of like Dylan and I last week were like big single payer week. We got the hearing, we got the CBO report. The hearing was exceedingly polite. The CBO report, well, I think very well-written and informative was essentially like a international health systems 101. Like what they did, my favorite part of the report is a table on the fourth page that kind of outlines the different features of different international healthcare systems in a really clear and um, cogent way. I don't think it told people working on single payer anything different. I don't think it told them anything new about how such a bill would be scored that they didn't know already. The things I thought I might see in there that wouldn't were things that did like would deal with actual numbers. Like if you set me- reimbursement rates at Medicare levels, here's how much it would cost or you know, here's the size of a tax you would need, you know, to finance this or that. And it did not even get to that level of specificity. So instead it was a very thoughtful guide, you know, as the title says, to the key components one right? Like, you know, what to expect when you're expecting to write a single-payer bill. I thought it was going to be, and maybe I misunderstood the request for it, I thought it was going to be a tiny bit more specific than, um, than what it ended up coming out as. Right.
3: I think it tells you a lot that there were healthcare professors on Twitter saying I'm going to assign this to one of my classes and the political press almost completely ignored it. There was a that 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 much lack of fireworks. But yeah, I mean, I came away from this really interested. Like I learned things about the Taiwanese healthcare <laughs> system that I didn't know and found kind of fascinating, like the fact that a really good IT system has so been so integral to their success, I thought was interesting. The fact that they, like, the way they do their global budgeting and pay providers, I thought was really fascinating. But, like, yeah, there wasn't, in terms of, like, what a Medicare for all bill would look like um, here in the United States and how CBO would evaluate that, we really didn't learn anything. Like, the, this report is completely devoid of numbers, I think, any meaningful numbers. To me, this was, like, a brilliant way
1: to undermine the push for single payer healthcare right like i i just i feel like what like single payer proponents like always want is for, like tough pushback and then like they get into a fight in which single payer side has this kind of like uh, ethics high ground and that whenever you can instead this is like a little bit of like a like a rope a dope mm. and be like aha you are correct here are a bunch of design considerations <laughs> there's a lot of good ways to make this system more- and it's just like it's tempting you to like okay right. okay pick one yeah pick one right like like here Here's one thing to think about. Who's going to own the hospitals? Right. And then they go through some different ways that you can do it, right? And it, it is true, right? Like it's, it's not that this question makes it unworkable. Yeah. There are a lot of different models of this. But – all countries that have a healthcare system, like they, they pick one of them, right? Right, and so they just like they give you this menu, and like now it's your problem, yeah. As the author of the single payer, basically like, it's like
3: here are all the difficult decisions you would have
1: to right, make. Right, but it doesn't even say they're difficult. <laughs> right. It's just like here, here's the and easy. No, selection. You like, you select yes. an appetizer, you select <laughs> an entree, right? But like now it's now it's your problem right. as the would be author of Medicare for all legislation. Like you have this like extensive. You were saying no, like, but it's
2: not even your problem. It's like your set of options. You could do it how Canada does it. You right. could do it the way Taiwan does it. Like it sets it up as like you know this is and it's true. This is a problem that dozens of countries have solved before us. And it basically says like we're not talking about an impossible thing. You know, just choose your own adventure. Single payer system, but it's like, but
1: it's like a long, annoying homework assignment, right? right? Like, like you're saying, like, like professors were like, I will assign this to my <laughs> students, right? Because like, it's good, right? It's like you go back home, representative so yeah. and so, yeah. Like Here, here's a packet to read over, right? Like you can do the problem sets, but it means that like one of the first difficulties of pushing this forward is that like not only do you need to like win some elections and intimidate some people with primaries and all this other stuff, but like inside the single payer camp, you need to reach some kind of consensus. Right. about these issues. And it's not that like Canada's system works, Taiwan's system works, Sweden's system works, but they're not the same, Yeah, right? And so it's like, you have to pick, and it's easy as an individual. Like I could look at this and be like, all right, this way, this way, this way, this way, and that way. Yeah. But like, Sarah might not agree. Right. And, like now we, have, you know, it's it's a kind of effective thing to be like, instead of you guys all teaming up to yell at me, like, why don't you yell at each
3: other? Yeah. There is kind of an amazing circular logic in some pieces of the report. So like on the question of private insurance, Mm -hmm. they go into like whether or not, you know, you should get rid of it or not um, or whether you should allow private insurance plans that basically compete with the national Medicare for all plan. And so they start off by saying, well, if you get rid of private insurance, that's going to cut provider payments. And, you know, that could lead to these adverse effects, fewer doctors, hospital closings, whatever. They're like – then they say, well, but if you allow – Um, private insurance to remain, maybe that allows for, you know, doctors and hospitals to make up some of the revenue that they lost and, you know, offset some of those concerns that you might have. And then they bring it back around again to like, but if you allow private insurance and the private insurance pays a lot better than the public plan, maybe doctors and hospitals give priority to those private insurance patients. And that leads to people with the national health plan, the Medicare for all plan, facing longer wait times or they're not able to access the services that they need. So like it, it, pre- it presents you sort of like the problem from every side with no way to resolve it. Right. Which is sort of speaks to like this this great like. And there's this thing like here on page 21, they're like – they're talking about payment
1: rates. And then like at the end of that, they're saying other considerations. And then one of the other considerations is, for example, teaching hospitals could have higher payment rates or receive compensation for their teaching costs through direct payments outside the single-payer system. And it's like (laughs) on the one hand, who fucking cares? (laughs) On the other hand, people who have teaching hospitals in their districts, now that you mention it, they probably care actually a lot about this, right? And it's just like – it's such a contrast from like every other major country guarantees healthcare as I like a right. Your, I don't think I've heard your Sanders
2: impression before. <laughs> um,
1: to this, like, here's a fucking annoying question you have to deal with. And like obviously, this is not an unsolvable problem, right? Like, either the teaching hospitals can get higher reimbursement rates inside the system, or there can be an out-of-system supplemental payment either would work fine. There's no problem. It's just that you would have to pick. And like who like wants to do that? This is like what people mean when they say like you're talking about restructuring 16% of the economy, right? Is that like you cannot do that with like a four page high level analysis of like what kind of outcomes you would like. There's like 80 bajillion annoying details that, like, you have to sit down and there's a lot of stakeholders with them and people are going to have all kinds of feelings because it really matters, right? Like, if a teaching hospital is one of the major employers in your town, you're going to, like, really want that in. On the other hand, if you're, like, a lot of towns and the hospital is a major employer but it's not a teaching hospital, you don't want a system that, like, loads the dice against you and, and sends people away and, like... Who knows? Good yeah, luck. Yeah,
2: and you're going to get some of them wrong. Like inevitably, like I think one of the things we learned from the Affordable Care Act is like people tried their best to like write a good health care bill and there were just problems they couldn't foresee. Some of it was drafted sloppily and had to go to the Supreme Court to figure out like if, you know, the law guaranteed um, subsidies to everyone. I remember there was like just one kind of quirky drafting error. That really fucked up all the territory. Places like Puerto Rico and Guam, it fucked up their healthcare systems because it created an individual mandate for those places. Uh, or no, it did not have the individual mandate and did not have the subsidies, but it had guaranteed issue. So all of a sudden it was like wreaking havoc on like territorial. Healthcare systems. I know. And, and like I interviewed the guy from Guam and he's like, we're lobbying on this, we're not getting anywhere. <laughs> and I was like, is this a unique situation? He kind of just sighed. I was like, no, like this is just what it's like being Guam.
1: That's why I support statehood for Guam. Although, okay.
2: well, <laughs> you know, yeah, I'll listen to your weeds on that next week. Um these tiny little decisions aren't tiny for the districts that have teaching hospitals. And some of them are big. There was one that was brought up, um in a really great article um, in this newspaper, the New York Times, by Margo Singer-Katz and Reed Abelson, one of the things I pointed out, which I just never thought about, is the fact a lot of our retirement accounts are invested in um, health insurance stocks. And like, ah. I don't know what you do about that. And that's not really one where you can like look at Taiwan or Canada because they never got to a point where you had such advanced healthcare systems that a nation's retirement savings were tied up in the future of your health insurance plans. Um, So there are a lot of annoying questions, and some of them, like the teaching hospitals, you pick one. But, like, the health insurance stocks, like, I don't really know. And, like, there really isn't, like, an international perspective to say, like, Australia did it this way or Canada did it this way because none of them had to deal with it. I think one of the things a CBO report can't get at Is the fact that we are – if we transition to single-payer, we'd be transitioning from a system that is such a developed health insurance infrastructure and that presents its kind of own unique challenges. Yeah.
1: To roll back to to what we were saying before, this sort of underscores the extent to which the the single-payer push I think like works better as a bargaining tactic than as a legislative goal, right? right? It's like if you're saying, look, man – If there is a new democratic regime, like a democratic president, a democratic senate, democratic house, I mean, who knows if that will come about. But like we expect you, like the new president, the new pivot point legislators, the blue dog caucus, to come to the table with a thing that will expand coverage to more people and uh, cut down on the pricing power of private actors in the system right the more people you can get on board for like something like 646 like the the more oomph you have behind that but the more you go the other way and it's like oh i'm really actually intrigued by your idea single-payer proponents um can you just like tell me like like exactly what your idea is going to look like then they've they've Made remarkably little progress, I would say, on answering some of this. Like, I think this CBO document is is great. It's, like, a really good primer on these issues. Yeah. But it doesn't, like, break new conceptual ground. If you had been curious about this topic in 2014, you could have gotten people to write you up, like, right.
3: exactly this document. It's There's no, like, new discovery here. Yeah, it's a great 30 pages on, like, how you would go about setting up a single-payer system. Right. But, like, in the abstract.
1: And And nobody has really done it. Yeah, like 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 the people on on the hill, right? There's no, there's been no work done as we're now in like year five of Bernie Sanders' quest for the White House, toward like answering these kinds of questions. Which I don't think is necessarily bad. As I mean, political what incentive
2: tactic. is there? Like again, like with the political landscape being what it is, right? Like what incentive? is there like what I think it's like the perfect compromise if you're an advocate to leave this work to the CBO
1: to me this is sort of different from some of what I've seen in the the Green New Deal community Mm. where like yes they are interested in Overton window games and they recognize that like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is not going to be like driving the legislative agenda personally but they are in fact like scrambling to come out with regulatory agency proposals narrow issues domain specific bills because like they feel like a a real sense of urgency to like do as much as possible on climate change right. as quickly as possible. And they are, uh, don't quite have their ducks in a row yet, but they're like really trying yeah. to like come up with some stuff here. Right. Whereas like the healthcare people have, they've been working
3: at this much longer. Right.
1: And they like still haven't gotten to like any of the nuts and bolts.
3: Yeah. And I guess that comes to the question of like, what do Democrats actually want to do if they get the chance in 2021? Because like I think something that gets lost amid all this energy about Medicare for all is that really the most like effective political tactic of the last decade or so has been running against the other person's health care plan. Like that's what Republicans deployed after Obamacare passed. It brought them a lot of the House and then the Senate and then the White House and now and then Democrats in 2018, really what they were running on was opposing the Republican plans to roll back the Affordable Care Act. And so like it seems it seems sometimes I wonder like if we're spending a lot of energy when Democrats would if they you know had the opportunity in 2021 to govern that like this would be more like a we need to do something to kind of like get health care off the plate. But like this is not where they really want to spend Their time and energy.
1: Although, what I think is
3: interesting about this is that if you go
1: back to like old, tedious, wonky conversations about healthcare from 2005, 2006, 2007, right? Like, one of the things you remember is just that like systemic healthcare costs are like a big problem for America. And the basic issue is are not actually that different in the multi-payer system or in the single-payer system. Like, as Sarah has has taught us all in in five years at Vox, like – you, you could do the price regulation outside the context of the single-payer system, or you can be America and, and not. But, like, either way, that's why healthcare costs in the U.S., right? Like, whether they're on the government's books or your employer's books or coming out of your pocket, like, they're exorbitant, like, because the prices are high. You could make the prices be lower. But, like, if the prices were lower, I mean, you can go read the CBO report and just, like, imagine it's not about single-payer. And, like, all the same questions apply. It's like, if— there wasn't so much money going into the doctors and hospitals. Like, maybe some of the hospitals would close. Maybe the doctors would move. You know, like, maybe quality would decline. And on some level, I feel like these are inescapable. It's like nobody wants to answer these questions, but right. I. But it's like you're investing. Like, we run up into these problems all the time.
2: The prices, I mean, I think, like, at the core of it, if I've learned anything over my past five years at Vox, including the 1600 medical bills I read, it's like, the problem is the prices. And, like, I think it's a lot of people don't like their health insurance companies. So it's exciting to talk about getting rid of private insurance. But, you know, I've become pretty convinced. But I think it's like um, the problem is the prices, but the prices are also the hardest part to tackle. Because, like, right. all that money that goes into healthcare from prices, they are jobs and they are new hospitals and they are like building this healthcare infrastructure. So people are going to fight like hell to not have the prices regulated. But the prices are at like, like if weeds listeners want to take anything from what I've said on the show for five years, like the prices are at the core of that problem we have with healthcare. They're also the thing that our political system seems like to struggle the most to deal with.
1: But all of these intermediate options, right, it's like you could do a buy-in, you could do Medicare for kids, you could, do, you know, whatever you want. To say, OK, I'm going to try to be less drastic than Medicare for All. Like, fine. But it still implicates the same basic issue. Like, the reason we didn't get a public option back in 2009 is that the strong – like, a strong public option would have reduced the prices paid to providers. And the providers didn't, didn't want yes. prices to go down, right? Like, it's not – I mean, there like, this Overton – like, all that stuff is is real, but, like, the, the like ground truth, right, is not actually avoidable, it seems to me, by scaling back to some of these these other kinds of things. Because like either we in some form or another are going to pay like all this money to the hospitals or, or else we're not.
3: Right. Well, and I think you've seen. I think industry recognizes that, and you've seen this partnership for America's healthcare future, um, which is basically a collection of every notable yes. health industry lobbying group and in D.C. They're not saying this cap plan is amazing. They're not. They're. They're. They have perhaps wisely, from a politics perspective, like they have th- basically any kind of public plan is. Uh, is objectionable to them. Like right. they they came out against the Debbie Stabenow let people who are 50 years old buy into Medicare. They've obviously come out against Medicare for all, Medicare for America. So like they're not even willing to budge a little bit. So they the, the those stakes have or those battle lines have kind of been drawn already. And yeah, they don't even They have not, their Overton window has not shifted. Right. And
1: I always think that's an interesting question in politics, right? It's like when you have an idea that you know is going to be opposed by some powerful interests, does it make sense to like try to move closer to their position, even if they're going to oppose you anyway? Right. For the sake of seeming more reasonable? Mm. Or knowing that they're going to oppose you anyway, does it make sense to go maximum in the other direction so that you can maximize? the wins for other people right it's like if the hospital industry is going to nuke you with ads one way or another right. there's something to be said for like okay but you're going to get free medicine right
2: so i think we should um we should change gears and talk about a good use of healthcare let's and hospital do it. spending let's do it take a break come back for a white paper all right so today we have he returns to early life interventions for very low birth weight children from Eric Chin, Samantha Gold, and Justine Hastings. Um, this is a paper, you know, we're trying to not just do Swedish administrative data, use a little more American administrative data. So this is Rhode Island administrative data. And the thing they did, I thought this is a really, this is a study that surprised me a little bit. Um, so they looked at the impact of early life interventions for low birth weight newborns. Um, If you are a baby who is born less than the threshold is 1,500 grams, which works out to about 3.3 pounds, you are considered a very low birth weight infant. And hospitals will typically do more things to monitor the baby. The baby will near certainly end up in the NICU, it's going to get more intensive care, it's probably going to come back for more neurological checkups um, after it leaves the hospital, the American Academy of Pediatrics just recommends significantly more care for kids who are under this 1,500-gram threshold. So what these researchers did is they worked with the state of Rhode Island to look at the kids who are just below the threshold and the kids who are just above it. So looking at infants who weigh as little as 1,300 grams and as many as 1,700 grams at time of birth, and they find that the threshold crossing, as they describe it, it means there's more intensive in-hospital care. And they show some pretty significant gains later in life. They show a 0.34 standard deviation increase in test scores in elementary and middle school, a 17% point increase in probability of college enrollment, and 66,000 less in social program expenditures by age 14. And they try and figure out, like, what is going on here? What is different about these low birth weight babies? And they find, you know, no detectable changes in the quality of schools they go to, no big changes in parental responses. They really think it is the additional medical care at that early stage of life that is leading to these larger gains. And, you know, this paper essentially makes an argument that if you have this intervention very early in life, you can see some pretty big dividends paid further on. And um, I just thought it was a pretty interesting paper that I hadn't thought about. I was surprised at the magnitude of the things that they're finding across like college enrollment, social program expenditures, like test scores. It seems like a pretty wide wide array of things. And I think it also, you know, the the last thing I'd say take away from it is how how arbitrary a lot of things in medicine can be. Like I think we set up this 1,500-gram threshold because it seemed like Babies smaller than that, like, they probably need a lot of help, but I don't think there's much that's actually that different from, like, a baby that weighs, like, 100 grams more. We're talking about, like, an ounce or two difference. Well, a red, like, it's
1: a round number yeah. in exactly. the metric system, yes. which is just based literally a block of iron sitting in a vault <laughs> in yeah. Paris.
2: Yeah. So I think that was also, it's like, it seems like these babies who are just above the threshold, you know, actually, Dylan's the newest parent on this podcast, so we all know, like, you know, babies are small and like right. one ounce of difference seems to actually make a big difference in the medical care they get. And this paper is suggesting a big difference in their, you know, entire childhood outcomes.
3: Yeah, I'm glad you said that because my first thought after reading was this was like, do we need to change the threshold so that these kids who fall just above it and are now getting like outperformed yeah. by the, by Any, the smaller kids? Anytime you see
1: a good regression discontinuity design, <laughs> there is a bad arbitrary cutoff at work, right? Like <laughs> right. it's like it's good for research, right? Yeah. To just be like, okay, if you're like here, you get something awesome. And if you're like one inch above, you get nothing. That's like good for research purposes. But like right. never, like that never, when you step back and think about it, like, that never actually makes sense.
3: Right. Well, yeah, but the magnitude of the changes is pretty remarkable in that regard. I guess, do we do we have any—this is way outside of my expertise, and I think your guys' too, but, like, is it just that the opening period of your life is so essential that the more aggressive medical interventions can have these kind of lingering effects? I know they don't really go into, like, cause and effect, but I guess I wondered—
2: Yeah. So, I mean, that's the argument they make in this paper that essentially – and, you know, I went through – because they don't get super in-depth, and I wanted to understand better, like, what is actually different about being born, you know, a 1,400-gram baby versus 1,600? I was hoping there would be more detail on this. and There wasn't. But, you know, they – and this isn't just about things Rhode Island is doing differently. Rhode Island just happened to give them a lot of really great administrative data they could use to do this study. But the recommendations from the American Academy of Pediatrics is more intensive monitoring, near certainly a NICU admission, more follow-up appointments to check the baby's neurological status. So you might be catching things a little bit earlier. Um, But that was one place I I was hoping there'd be a little more detail in this study, and it Seem like you know in some places they were like you know I was trying to track this down. They're citing well like one manual from Boston says like here's how you treat low weight babies. So one question I did have about this paper is how um, how standard are these protocols for low weight yeah. babies, um, and you know how clearly are they being followed in a rigorous way so that we could really say like yes it's this additional medical care that is is leading to these better outcomes.
1: I also wonder how much the the low birth weight is. Like, like, what is the underlying issue exactly? Because, like, mm. one thing I know from a lot of air pollution studies and uh, WIC and SNAP studies is that, like, a lot of there, there are a lot of things where the um, dependent variable winds up being very low birth weight
3: births, right, right. right? So, is there so, like socioeconomic mm-hmm. or right. some kind of
1: right? So, I mean, it it could be that the children are very low birth weight because of some bad living conditions that the mother is experiencing and the extra interventions in some ambient way, like actually help alleviate the like larger bad situation, right? That like if you are uh, in a just like a very stressful situation, like having the extra medical attention might be helping you with something else. I mean, it's it's unfortunate. you know, if, if no, but
2: they do in this paper. So they do look at maternal stress, and yeah. they don't find that to be one of the things that's different. That's about, improved, yeah. yeah, which surprised me because I would have also thought. Yeah. And I th- there might be other knock-on things they aren't studying, but that is one they thought to study and did hmm. not see a connection there.
1: If there's anything I have learned in five years of weeds, I I think you know there's there's like a kind of interesting like meta politics about biology in the world where I think a lot of people. Uh, Progressive-minded people get a little leery of this whole subject, but there's, like, a ton of, like, really good evidence that, like, biochemical circumstances of people's early life in terms of their um, exposure to particulate pollution, their exposure to heavy metal contamination, uh, the nutritional environment that, like— Pregnant women and newborns receive the uh, noise level to which children are exposed, that like all of this stuff makes a really big difference and that it swamps this sort of like economics class, like everything is about incentives kind of thing, Mm -hmm. like, 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 be all you can be. And like, we don't want to deter people from from working hard type stuff that like, people suffer. And we know it like intuitively, right? Like, in an extreme case, like some people can't see. Right? And it's not like, well, they need like better incentives. (laughs) Right? It's like, your eyes don't work, your eyes don't work. But there's this like whole spectrum of things where like the very low birth weight children, just like if you give them help, like they wind up, doing way better.
2: Yeah, I mean, you see this tension in how kind of pregnant women are are treated. And, you know, on the one hand, a lot of it's like very paternalistic and very like, don't do this and don't do that. And you feel like, like, I'm still like a human while I'm carrying this other human. But at the same time, you also have this developing body of research. I did some interviews for an episode of last season of The Impact around people who are looking at the relationship between maternal stress and prematurity. And there's a growing consensus In the scientific community, that one of the things that might be driving premature births, which is a huge, huge predictor for infant mortality, for, you know, complications, um, you know, for that young baby, is more stress. That something about the body's reaction to stress just makes it a less hospitable place for the baby to hang out and they Mm -hmm. come out a little bit earlier is a very kind of basic interpretation of that science. And, you know, on the one hand, like when I was pregnant, like I just hated how like prescriptive everything was. And a lot of it wasn't based on evidence. And like you end up feeling like this vessel for another thing. On the other hand, you are a vessel for like another human being. And like there is more and more research suggesting the stress you experience is going to affect the baby that you're carrying. And I think there's often a case for balance. Like you need to respect the person carrying the baby, the baby being carried, But I think you're right, Matt. It kind of gets at, like, this tension in, like, liberal circles around, like, respecting parents, respecting, you know, pregnant women as, like, their own entity. But also, like, the decisions they're making, like, they do affect the baby they're carrying, too. And that's, like, a bit of a— Tension that's going on.
3: I thought it was interesting that the paper almost does that kind of cost-benefit analysis because not only mm-hmm. is it clearly a kind of like, there this is evidence for aggressive intervention early in uh, an infant's life, but like they they then tease out like and people you know the people who ended up receiving these early interventions r- received what was it like sixty thousand dollars less in like so, public in social spending, right? in social spending public yeah. benefits. So I mean that seemed to be the whole subtext of right. the paper was. But I mean also as a as a redress for
1: social inequities, right? That like it's 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 correct and proper to say that like there should be less like overt and subconscious like discrimination against adults. But I think the clearest way to read a lot of this is that like a lot of cumulative disadvantage actually occurs like very, very early in life. And that like one of the most promising possible methods to like alleviate a lot of the big systematic inequities we see in America is to like really tackle the specifics around, you know, um, medical care and nutrition afflicting like small babies and small children and things like that. And not just in a kind of like – sometimes you'll hear this in a like rah-rah schools sort of context, which obviously is important. People spend a fair amount of time in school. But like, you know, it's it's the whole the whole thing, right? Like you got 18-month-olds and like some of them are in like nice, like affluent middle-class households where they have like a lot of resources to bear on this. And a lot of them aren't, right? And like the quality of medical care, like infants are receiving has like this is a big it's a big deal
2: well one thing i'd be curious about is what the reaction would be like to trying to expand these programs let's say like you know the people in rhode island they see this and they say oh wow this is a bad threshold like we should really like let's try moving it up to 1800 that's probably going to be pretty expensive for the medicaid program Mm -hmm. because you know about half of births in the u.s are financed by medicaid nICU care is incredibly expensive because of the high prices we've been talking about it seems like this will in like the bigger global picture, it'll pay off in the long run, but you'd have to find the Medicaid dollars to um, to finance expanding these services to another group of infants. I don't know how many babies fall in that category, but I, I do know healthcare is very, very expensive. And, and you know, this is like where you do get into like in single payer. There's often this discussion of rationing, and like mm-hmm. one of the things we're doing now is like we're rationing this medical intervention for the kids who seem to need it. The most and this paper suggests we're leaving out kids who could also benefit from it because we're deciding, OK, this should go to really the sickest of the not the sickest, but the kind of smallest of the, you know, we're talking about like a baby who's like three pounds and nine ounces. That is a tiny yep. baby. That baby is not going to be eligible for these interventions. And it really is like one of the many, many rationing decisions that get made in the United States to say, OK, we're going to reserve this resource for the baby who weighs, you know, three pounds, two ounces, but the baby who weighs three pounds, nine ounces, like they're not going to be eligible for this. I
1: mean, someday we will do a, a proper modern monetary theory episode of The Weeds. But like, this is a good example of the sort of thing where I do feel that like America is hurt by excessively budget focused thinking, right? Because like the, real, like the real question this poses is like, A, can we like expand the amount of NICU facilities substantially to serve a substantially larger swath of the, the, the neonatal population. Um, I, I, I don't know. You know, this is something I know about. But, or like what would be involved in doing that, right? Because it's, it's not just a monetary thing, right? It's like I, I think – you don't like stroll into a big city NICU and it's like just half empty all the time. And you could just like throw another nurse in there, right? It's like you would have to build things, you would have to train people up. So like, what would be entailed in that? But then, how much? Like, would that actually be costly as a society, or would it be beneficial? Like, right. would we be having a much healthier adult well, population? Through, like, would it with be costly fewer... as a society?
2: Not like, would it be more costly for the Medicaid Rhode Island program? Yeah, right. Year? Right,
1: <laughs> but if you think about it because like at a certain point like it probably isn't worth the cost right like if putting every newborn into these very intensive medical treatments would probably have very few marginal benefits right so like there is a point where it stops making sense but looking at the cost benefit narrowly in terms of like how does the budget framework specifically work is going to lead you to under resource things that that pay off well because like the, the decrease in social assist- long-term social assistance spending is interesting, right? But like that's just a small part of the like global social returns presumably, right? Like whatever reason it is that that people getting treatment wind up having less poverty down the road like has more and more benefits down the line.
2: In any case, it seems like this is a call to reevaluate the standard move it up
1: Uh, more states should consider releasing their administrative data about this so that we can get a clearer picture of what's happening
2: that'd be great well i think i think that's the end guys sarah is it. I mean, I'm, I'm like my office is literally going to be three blocks from here. I'm glad. I'm, we glad, we, still I'm out. glad we
1: got to go out on administrative data. Thank though, you. <laughs> at it's, least
2: it's single parent administrative health care. What it's, dreams are made of.
1: It is. It is. Um, so to everyone out there in weeds land, I, I mean, I hope you will you will wish Sarah a, a fond farewell uh, from from the audio universe. Um, but also, you know, we are going to have to uh, retool the show a little bit uh, going forward. And hopefully uh, we'll have the opportunity to take on um, perhaps a broader range of subjects although we will be missing uh, some of the expertise here so you know please let me know uh, my email address is matt at vox.com if you've got any uh, thoughts uh, on on what you'd like to see uh, see the weeds go into in the future um, I'm just I'm really sad <laughs> <laughs> uh, but thanks everybody for listening uh, thanks to Sarah for uh, a lot of great podcasts over the years thanks Matt um, thanks and, for uh, being a
2: good podcast
1: co-host yeah and uh Well, we will be back on Friday.